0: Antoine Laumet was a French explorer born in 1658 who began his career as a trapper and fur trader in Acadia. His knowledge of the coasts of New England and the Great Lakes proved useful to the early settlement of French colonies in the New World, earning him favors from French nobility, including the Order of Saint-Louis from King Louis XIV. Using these connections, La May gradually achieved various positions of political importance, eventually becoming the governor of Louisiana in 1713. Before that, though, in 1701, Antoine founded Fort Pontchartain du Détroit, which eventually became the city of Detroit, Michigan. Of course, now as a noble, Antoine needed a title. So he adopted the name Antoine de la Moff, Sieur de Cadillac. Like most colonizers, modern scholars now describe Cadillac as one of the worst scoundrels ever to set foot in New France. But for a long time, Cadillac was viewed as a hero, especially in the Motor City, where, two centuries later, automotive engineer Henry M. Leland named his new car company after Detroit's founder.
1: The Cadillac Automobile Company quickly established itself as America's premier luxury car maker, before being purchased by General Motors in 1909. For the next century, Cadillac became the standard of high quality. For a long time, a top-of-the-line product was referred to as the Cadillac of its respective market. In the early 2000s, Cadillac launched an ad campaign to promote the company's new art and science design philosophy and chose to team up with a band that, in over 30 years, had never before licensed their music for commercial purposes. For a reportedly ridiculous amount of money, Cadillac's new TV advertisements brought a little rock and roll to the company's image, using the second track for one of rock music's most influential albums. Today on the podcast, Led Zeppelin IV.
0: Hello and welcome to Please No Moss, the podcast about Rolling Stone Magazine's 2020 list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. That's Derek. And that's Pat. On today's episode, we'll be talking about the number 58 album from the list, Led Zeppelin 4.
1: So Derek, to kind of kick off the discussion here, could you tell me a little bit about what's your sort of history with
0: the album? So Led Zeppelin is probably my favorite band. In, if you know Derek, you know this. Yeah. In about 2004, when the White Stripes Elephant came out, mm-hmm. and I was you know, playing in the car with my parents and they said, oh, these guys sound a lot like Led Zeppelin. And so I was like, oh, well, I guess I should check them out. And, you know, it's been 20 years now, and I've listened to everything that they've put out. It's So how old were you at the time that you first heard it? Like 2004, so oh. I'd have been 14, 15. Okay. And there was, you know, a period when I was listening to vinyl records that... at There was a point where I actually collected all nine of Led Zeppelin studio albums. Oh. This was one, Led Zeppelin IV was one that I inherited from my parents, who I think... It was originally owned by my aunt, but she gave it to my mom at some point.
1: Yeah, I do. I am going to bring up throughout this series whether I have inherited the album or not, or the LP or not. So this was inherited. Yeah, an but, heirloom. Yes.
0: But of the albums by Led Zeppelin, of the nine studio albums, well, of other live albums too, which mm-hmm. I'm less familiar with, but this is my. Important nonetheless. Yeah, important nonetheless. This is my favorite of Led Zeppelin's oeuvre, if you will. It's. Just nonstop. Different songs from it have been my favorite song at different periods in my life.
1: I think you're in good company there. Yeah, I never. I, I didn't inherit the album. I don't think until somewhat recently. I'd like sat down and said, "Okay, I'm going to listen to album by album as an entirety." So my exposure is like some of the stuff on this list going to be just through osmosis, hearing on the radio, hearing it in Cadillac advertisements, <laughs> etc. All to say that, like, yeah, you listen to the album, you're like, wow, these are all singles or otherwise really well-played albums, and that's sort of what makes it
0: one of the best-selling albums of all time. So before we dive into the history of Led Zeppelin and this album specifically, let's talk about what was going on. on? This album was released in November 1971.
1: In other music news, the number one song at the time was Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves by Cher. Uh, In this house, we stand Share. She's fantastic. Although, don't, you know, request a DJ at a wedding to play. (laughs) Apparently an unpopular song, despite our enthusiasm. But I want to point out that also, you know, 1971 was a crazy year for music because Marvin Gaye's What's Going On also came out in that year.
0: Topic of a previous episode.
1: Yeah. And let's see what else. Rolling Stones, Sticky Fingers. We had...
0: Topic of a future episode.
1: Hopefully. One of my favorite albums. We had Carol King come out with Tapestry. Mm -hmm. Isaac Hayes with his Shaft soundtrack.
0: There's a Riot going on by Sly and the Family Stone.
1: Yeah. So it is just jam-packed you know, whatever you're interested in, there was something going on.
0: Say what you will about the 70s, but I feel like there's a reason that the 70s are the most represented decade on the Rolling Stone 500 list.
1: And it's, you know, I, I hope that we did Arcade Fire, which is newer, but I hope that we can kind of get into more of the albums that are new for the 2020 list versus the 2012 list. But for this one, it's been on the entire time, right? Yeah. On all three revisions of yep. the list now.
0: Outside of the music world, the number one movie at the box office on November 8th, 1971, was The Organization. This was the third film starring Sidney Poitier as Virgil Tibbs, following In the Heat of the Night, which won Best Picture in 1967. Mm -hmm. And then the second installment in that series, They Call Me Mr. Tibbs, which came out in 1970. The plot of The Organization is, uh, in San Francisco, police lieutenant Virgil Tibbs helps a group of idealistic vigilantes expose a drug ring controlled by powerful businessmen. Also born around this time, we have Sasha Baron Cohen, Snoop Dogg, and Winona Ryder, all born in the month leading up to the release of Led Zeppelin 4. You
1: know, if you had asked me, I would never have assumed that Sasha Baron Cohen was as old as Snoop Dogg, <laughs> but you learn something new every day. Oh yeah, so notable births, of course, followed by notable deaths. Dwayne Allman, frontman for the Allman Brothers, and the subject of a future episode for certain, dies in a motorcycle accident at the age of 24.
0: And finally, John Lennon releases the song Imagine as a single, which would eventually peak at number three on the billboard chart.
1: So Derek, before we get into, well, I guess the history of the album, should we talk a little bit about the artist Led Zeppelin first?
0: Yeah, of course. So the story of Led Zeppelin begins with Jimmy Page. Born in Heston, England in 1944, his father was a personnel manager at a plastic coatings plant. And his mother was a doctor's secretary. He first started playing guitar at age 12 and was largely self-taught. As a teenager, he became a session guitarist known as Little Jim P. He played three sessions a day, 15 sessions a week. Uh, How should that pay? I don't know off the top of my head. Would it be enough to get you? Yeah, enough. You know, he was making it as a musician at a relatively young age. He played session guitar for The Who and The Kinks and The Rolling Stones. He played guitar on the singles for Petula Clark's Downtown and Shirley Bassey's Goldfinger.
2: Goldfinger. He's the man, the man with the mightiest touch.
0: He also played incidental music for the Beatles' film A Hard Day's Night, which we'll be talking about when we cover that album later. In 1964, Page was approached to replace Eric Clapton in The Yardbirds, but declined out of loyalty to Clapton and unwillingness to leave his lucrative career as a session musician. As well as concerns about his health under touring conditions, he had glandular fever. It does Inbalanced sound like fears. a very mid-century disease. Yeah. Old, but I
1: get to like get your glands drained. He had
0: to be hospitalized for a, a while, and had, you mm-hmm. know it was it was a serious concern. Obviously, he got better and toured with Led Zeppelin. So after weeks after being offered the the position as guitarist in the Yardbirds. Mm-hmm. Um, Page ends up replacing Yardbirds bassist Paul Samuel smith rather than so instead of replacing Eric Clapton he replaces the bassist so he's playing bass guitar but then eventually switching to lead guitar joining Jeff Beck as twin lead guitarists and then Jeff classic Beck,
1: formula for success yeah. like
0: Jeff Beck that. would leave the Yardbirds in 1966. The Yardbirds would release one album with Page on lead guitar. It's called Little Games.
2: for little boys I'm growing up and changing all my toys The album
0: received indifferent reviews, and it was not a big success. Uh, it peaked at number 80 on the Billboard 200. So then Yardbirds drummer Jim McCarty and vocalist Keith Relf left to form a folk rock duo, while Page wanted to continue with a heavier blues-based sound. Following McCarty and Relf's departure, the Yardbirds were still committed to several concerts in Scandinavia. So they had these tour dates that they needed to fulfill. They had, you know, contracts. Right, right. Uh, so Page and P- bassist Chris Dreja started putting a new lineup together in order to fulfill these dates. So they needed a vocalist and a drummer. Page's first choice for frontman was was a singer named Terry Reed, But Reed turned the job down and recommended singer Robert Plant from the group Band of Joy who then accepted the position. So Robert Plant, he was born in West Bromwich, England in 1948 to a Romani mother and a civil engineer father. He abandoned his training as a chartered accountant to become part of the English Midlands blues scene at the age of 16. So another teenager trying to become a musician. Uh, While pursuing his his music career he worked a variety of jobs including laying tarmac and working at a Woolworths department store man of many talents yeah man of many talents so while he's up and coming he sang for a number of bands including a group called the crawling king snakes which brought him into contact with drummer john bonham the two of them would cross paths later as you'll see bonham and plant as i said, would later play together in band of joy following terry reed's referral plant sang jefferson airplanes somebody to love for jimmy page which won him the job when
2: the truth is found to be Uh,
0: Page was uh, so blown away by Plant that he couldn't understand why he wasn't already a big name yet and assumed that he must be difficult to work with. Like, oh, you have all this talent. Why aren't you big? Yep. The reason must be like, oh, you're a hard personality. You're but a snake But Page and Plant got along great. so Glad to lock that stuff down. So the Artbirds are still in need of a drummer. So they've got Page, Plant, and Dreja. Plants, you know, having worked with this guy, John Bonham, before, recommended him. And it's like, hey, we we're in Crawling Kingsnakes and Band of Joy. Kill uh, like, Johnny. Here. let's let's yeah let's bring him in so John Bonham was born in Redditch England Bonham began learning the drums at five years old making a drum kit from containers and coffee tins I don't I think you know I think everybody's done that at yeah. When they were a kid
1: yeah I was babysitting my buddy's kid and I'm like all right here's a upturned salad bowl have at it boy
0: his Parents, though, I think were a bit more supportive in, in that direction. His mother gave him a snare drum when he was 10, and then his father gave him a first, his first full drum kit when he was 15. So that must have been an interesting five years between 10 and 15 when all he had was a snare drum. But,
1: and his childhood kit.
0: Yeah, and his childhood kit of his coffee just, tin.
1: Yeah, he's just got it on music stands. He has everything except for the professional
0: <laughs> drums. While in school, his headmaster wrote in a report that Bonham would either end up a dustman or a millionaire. It's like you're going to be taking out the trash or you're going to have lots and lots of money.
1: I don't know. Trash Man seems like an upgrade. You're the Dust Man.
0: So, before making it big, Bonham worked for his father as an apprentice carpenter between drumming for local bands. So, now with the band consisting of Plant on vocals, Paige on guitar, Bonham on drums, and Dreja on bass, the Yardbirds can now complete their Scandinavian tour, right? Right. Nope. While Paige was recruiting Plant and Bonham, Bassist Chris Dreja left the band to pursue a career in photography, so the band is now without a bassist. Great timing. This isn't the last we'll hear from Chris Dreja, though. Really? We'll probably bring him up again when we talk about Led Zeppelin 1, if only briefly because he would take the photograph that appears on the back of Led Zeppelin 1's debut album. Oh, that's Uh, cute. He came back. Yeah. So... The band needs a bassist. And Uh, where do they find a bassist
1: in England?
0: So there's this guy named John Richard Baldwin. He was born in Sidcup, England in 1946. His father was a pianist and arranger for big bands and taught John to play piano. Uh, His mother was also in the music business, and the family would perform together around England as a vaudeville comedy act. Toward the tail end of vaudeville. Yeah, this would have been in the 50s that this would have been happening. At 14 years old, he became the choir master and organist at a local church, and that same year, he, he bought his first bass guitar. In 1962, he was hired as a bassist by the band The Shadows. Before hiring Baldwin, The Shadows had a number one hit in Britain with the song Diamonds, on which Jimmy Page actually played session guitar. In 1964, Baldwin begins working as a studio studio musician for Decca Records, Records, playing on hundreds of recording sessions until 1968. During this time, he worked with numerous artists, including the Rolling Stones, on their Satanic Majesty's request. He actually did the string arrangement, uh, which can be heard on She's a Rainbow. He also worked with Jeff Beck, Cat Stevens, Rod Stewart. For those of you listening at home, I'm currently
1: assembling a chart corkboard full of just different connections between all these band members and yeah. groups.
0: Yeah, I mean, Jeff Beck, obviously, the one to watch. Eric Clapton as well. Mm-hmm. Less so this episode. We'll get in more when we start talking about the Beatles and his connections with George Harrison. And It'll uh, come back. Cream and all the other, Derek and the Dominoes, all the other bands that Eric Clapton was around. But, you know, he turned out to be a shithead. So. <laughs> <laughs> so while he is working as a studio musician, John adopts the name John Paul Jones after it was suggested to him by a friend who had seen a poster for the 1959 film John Paul Jones about the American Revolutionary War naval hero by the same name. While working as a studio musician, he gets burnt out. He says, I was arranging 50 or 60 things a month and it was starting to kill me. So on his wife's suggestion, Jones asks Paige about the vacant bassist position, and Paige eagerly invites him to work in the band. The two had previously worked together as session musicians. Uh, sure. So he's like, oh, this guy's amazing. Yes, of course. We want to That it already. So we now have the Yardbirds are back. You've got <laughs> They're
1: playing in Scandinavia. Yeah, so a couple new, of tour dates.
0: The new quartet completes the Scandinavian tour as the new Yardbirds playing their first show together at the Glad Sachs School in Denmark on September 7th, 1968. Like,
1: imagine buying tickets and being like, who are these
0: jerks? <laughs> <laughs> they begin recording their first album, but like I said, that's going to be a story for another time. Before the new Yardbirds could release this new album, though, Chris Dreha issues a cease and desist letter stating that Paige was only allowed to use the Yardbirds name for the Scandinavian tutor date. So it's like, okay, now that the tour tour is over, you can't be the Yardbirds anymore.
1: Latreha, give it a rest, man. You quit this.
0: So the band needs a new name and they decide on Led Zeppelin Now, how'd they get that? So the name comes from Paige's previous experience recording the song "Bex Bolero with Jeff Beck and Keith Moon and John Entwistle from The Who. Paige wanted the four of them to form a supergroup, which Entwistle said would go over like a lead balloon. It's unclear if Keith Moon suggested the name Led Zeppelin at this time or if Paige changed balloon to Zeppelin later.
1: Is he like a well-known, you know, lighter-than-air enthusiast or?
0: Well, it's not, you know, that's a saying like, oh, that'll go over like a lead balloon.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah but the zeppelin
0: so a balloon zeppelin is a type of balloon it's there's one i think music critic who described like oh zeppelin perfectly evokes like masculinity as well as it's phallic. it's more it's more fanciful than just balloon i guess Yeah,
1: lead balloon not serious (laughs) lead zeppelin okay let's have a fiery photograph on our album right
0: yeah The letter A was also dropped from the word lead, so people unfamiliar with the band wouldn't mispronounce it as lead Zeppelin. So with this new name, Atlantic Records gives the band $143,000 advance contract. This is the largest deal for any new band at the time. It was worth about one and a quarter million dollars today. So they played their first show as Led Zeppelin on October 25th, 1968. Their first album, Led Zeppelin, was released in January 1969 and would peak at number ten on the Billboard charts. We'll talk about that album in more detail. Yeah. Later so Led
1: Zeppelin won so. 1969, Led Zeppelin for 1971. We're gonna come back to just yeah. the absolute insane pace at which these bands in the 60s and 70s were expected to produce content.
0: Oh, especially the Beatles. Yeah, it's, it's like you had six blows,
1: months without without an album. Oh my God, you're it always the blows my your... mind
0: that every single Beatles. Re- release except for you know the weird ones that came later like the one that just came out this year but like all the like your canon beetle releases were all released in a seven year span no and it's like 20 albums or something it's bonkers yeah
1: whereas you're gonna get one gone album every four years <laughs> and you're gonna love it
0: so yeah the band's second album Led Zeppelin Two, was released in October 1969 became the band's first number one album in the UK and US we'll also be talking about that in a later mm-hmm. episode the band's third album titled you guessed it Led Zeppelin Three was released in October
1: 1970
0: not on the list not on the list so we'll go into a little bit more detail right now that's not what the episode's about but just to give you some more context it was recorded at a remote cottage in Wales featured a more and how do you pronounce that again? This remote cottage? <laughs> Brawny or Ire, I believe. i um,
1: sure there's some angry Welshman yeah. just
0: Led Zeppelin four also recorded in part there, so we'll talk about yeah. that in a bit more in a second. Led Zeppelin Three featured a more acoustic style, which was influenced by folk and Celtic music. The album also reached number one in the US and UK. The immigrant song would be released mm-hmm. as a single in the US Against the Band's Wishes. <laughs> They
1: have been pretty picky about which songs they released as singles. Yeah, so
0: Led Zeppelin has history of seeing albums as indivisible, complete listening experiences, uh, preferring not to release songs as radio-friendly singles.
1: Right. I mean, that's what I was saying earlier is I'm like, it took me a while to get back and realize like, oh, no, this, these are parts of a greater whole.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, despite the "Immigrant Song" being released against as a single against the band's wishes, it still ended up as a top twenty hit. Was you know it was used in School of Rock. It was used in fantastic movie by uh, the way. Thor Ragnarok. So by the nineteen seventies, Led Zeppelin was arguably the biggest band of the world. Yeah, you know, when they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame years later, they were described as basically the Beatles of the seventies. So the band began wearing flamboyant clothing and started doing laser light shows at the concerts, all your sort of standard, you know, 70s rock band kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. They traveled on a private Boeing 720 named The Starship. There are many stories about debauchery while they were on tour. John Bonham rode a motorcycle through part of a hotel they had rented. They are banned from the Tokyo Hilton for life. Not sure why. I'm assuming they just trashed it. And perhaps most famously, they are banned from Seattle's Edgewater Hotel for allegedly pleasuring a groupie with a fish caught from the window of the hotel. It's an incident which is immortalized in Frank Zappa's song, Mud Shark.
2: The origins of the Mud Shark are as follows. There's a motel in Seattle, Washington. Called the Edgewater Inn. The Edgewater Inn is built out on a pier, so that means that when you look out your window, you don't see any dirt. It's got a bay or something out in your backyard. And to make it even more interesting, in the lobby of the aforementioned motel. There's a bait and tackle
0: shop, but um, <laughs> like the hotel, like overlooked the the bay or mm-hmm. the Puget Sound or where, you know, whatever body of water Seattle's on, and you could fish out the window. That was a thing that they like the hotel marketed, and they caught a fish. oh, <laughs> <laughs> they caught a fish, and then did unspeakable things with it. So yeah, that is Led Zeppelin sort
1: of, and they're the reason why you have to put a credit card down whenever <laughs> you check into a hotel now. <laughs> so we know all about the artist and their antics. Let's focus down just a little bit more on the history of Led Zeppelin Four, just the album.
0: Yeah. So following the release of Led Zeppelin three, the band took a break from live performances to concentrate on recording a follow-up. They even turned down and proposed a proposed New Year's Eve gig that would have been broadcast on TV. They wrote the songs for Led Zeppelin Four at Robert Plant's old family cottage, Braunir Eyer. And now, Pat, you have the chance to win five dollars. Okay. I will vend you five dollars right now if you can tell me what does "Brawnyer ire mean?
1: Um, It's Welsh.
0: I'll give you that hint.
1: Okay. Uh, So when I think of the Welsh, I think of just freaky little people on the island of Britannia. So, mm, Brawn. I'm going to say strong man.
0: The. the welsh
1: are are very stout people yes
0: but uh if you translate it into english it means breast of the gold or hill of gold in english
1: breast of the gold is this like a grand tetons kind of allusion to hills and titties
0: i mean yes i think so okay it seems that the welsh word for breast is also the same word for hill i think hey if you speak Welsh, let me know i might Mm. have that wrong so Broner Iyer located in a remote part of Wales as we mentioned is where they wrote some of the songs for Elvis up and 3 including Broner Iyer stomp there's no running water or electricity uh, it's, it's it's basically what Bonnie Vere did but 40 years earlier
1: <laughs> the template i mean like yeah the like musical retreat i think is kind of a meme yeah. now um, place thing
0: So it came time to record the album. Obviously, they need electricity for their guitars and stuff, so they can't record at Bronnerire.
1: They're just jamming out.
0: Yes, they considered recording at Mick Jagger's home, but decided it was too expensive, which is weird to me because they are, you know, they have lots of money. But you know, they're making wise financial decisions. Maybe not good decisions in other parts of their life, but
1: (laughs) you don't want to run out. You don't want the gravy train to end. So. Did so, they clip coupons? <laughs> is this going Perhaps.
0: So they recorded much of the album at Headley Grange, which is a country house in Hampshire, England, using the Rolling Stones mobile studio, which... You know, is this a van? I mean, it's a big van. I think. Oh, it
1: is like a moving van. Yeah. It's kind like of. A- I'm looking up a picture of it now. That is so weird.
0: So Headley Grange is sort of a rundown place. There was no heating. And Jimmy Page is quoted as saying that they... Needed a sort of needed the sort of facilities where we could have a cup of tea and wander around the garden and do what we had to do. Well, the,
1: the album came out in November, so they would have recorded it several months before. Yeah, did, so did they need
0: the heat. So the album, so that's the whole story. So the album was mixed. So after recording, the album was mixed in Los Angeles in February 1971 with the goal of an April release. But after this mix, the, you know, Jimmy Page played it for the other members of the band and they didn't like it. So after this initial mix, the band toured through the spring and early summer. And then during this time, Page remixed the whole album again in July.
1: Himself? Yes. Oh,
0: I mean, he probably worked with some people, but it was... On his initiative. In terms of band members involved in the, in the mixing, it was just paid. So the album is eventually released, like we said, on November 8th, 1971. So technically, the title of the album is Four Unpronounceable Symbols with each one represent, representing a member of the band, similar to what Prince would do with his own name in the ni- in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. The so Led Zeppelin wanted to release the album with no title or information in response to the press saying that the band was all hype. It's, a, it's sort of saying, hey, if we're all hype, then we'll release... No hype. We'll release an album with no hype. and anti If it's a hit, one. then it obviously is, We're more than no hype. So there's four symbols. There's the Zoso symbol, or at least a symbol that appears to have be the word Zoso Zo This symbol is supposed to represent Jimmy Page. Yeah, he has never publicly disclosed the reasoning behind it.
1: Do you think it refers to what is it? Jupiter. I think Saturn. We'll yeah, it's or been Saturn.
0: possibly used as early as 1557 to represent Saturn. Uh, was
1: this one that he picked from, like, a random pictograph book?
0: No, that was other band members. I'll talk about that. Robert so Plant
1: I'm, and what, Bonham? is. Uh, no, Bonham and... JPJ.
0: Uh, yeah, John Paul Jones. And zoso, the Zoso symbol is also not intended to be a word. It's just mm-hmm. a symbol that looks like a word, which also, isn't that what all words are? Symbols yeah, words are just, just symbols. symbols. So that's the Zoso symbol. The next one is the feather in a circle. That one represents Robert Plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is based on a symbol for the mythical lost continent of Mu.
1: Some say Atlantis. Some say Atlantis. Um, a giant continent in the middle of the Pacific that just disappeared.
0: The next symbol is the circle intersecting a triquetra, which
1: mm-hmm. is
0: the, uh, I don't know, it looks like a propeller, but there's a circle yeah. around it.
1: Triblade tri propellers, spirograph. Yeah.
0: So that one is John Paul Jones' symbol. And this one was chosen from Rudolf Koch's Book of Signs. Mm-hmm. And it's intended to symbolize a person who possesses both confidence and competence.
1: I think competence has got to be the circle. Confidence being the pointy spire graph, right? That's how I read it. Sure.
0: And then finally, the three interlocking circles uh, represents John Bonham. This is also picked from that same book of signs. It represents the triad of mother, father, and child. And it also, this one's easy. This one's the easiest for me to remember because it looks like a drum kit for, viewed from above. So that's yeah, why I, I always I, tie it. Oh, that one's the drummer. <laughs> so I said, Is there a fifth one? I there? said finally, but there is actually a fifth symbol. And it's hard to spot because it's in the album, it's used as just an asterisk. It basically is an asterisk. It is, and it basically is an asterisk, which makes sense why it was used an asterisk. But
1: it arguably um, is one of the most important symbols there because...
0: Well, I mean, of the five symbols, it would be the fifth most important. <laughs>
1: So what what is it? Uh, so
0: this is the symbol chosen by guest vocalist Sandy Denny.
1: The only guest vocalist only other... for Led Zeppelin.
0: Uh, yeah, on any of their albums.
1: Member uh, of the Fairport Convention. Yeah. And a force in her own right. So a good pickup for this one.
0: Yeah. So she gives guest vocals. The Battle of, of Evermore. The Battle of Evermore. And her symbol is three equilateral triangles. It's basically the same symbol that's used for fallout shelters.
1: Yeah, the civil defense kind of thing
0: and if you know keen eyes will find it on the inner sleeve of the lp serving like i said serving as an asterisk
1: but like one quarter the size of the first four symbols
0: like i said the technical name for this album is those four symbols that are unpronounceable because of that they most commonly this album is most commonly referred to as led zeppelin four following the naming convention of the previous three albums What's it less commonly referred to It. It's also sometimes referred to by Four Symbols, the fourth album, Zoso, Runes, and even just Untitled.
1: I've heard Runes, I think, the second most commonly.
0: I've really only ever seen Led Zeppelin 4. That is by far the most common way to refer to it.
1: The most clear too. It's like, what, think, comes, what comes after three?
0: I <laughs> think Page and Plant. Both refer to it as the fourth album.
1: We're free to disregard the artist and interpret things
0: our own way. Well, that's also like given the context in which they're speaking, like they might just be referring to it not as it's the album's title, but... Like, oh, when we were working on the fourth album, in the same way that any band could refer to the thing. first album. Yeah. <laughs> so, Led Zeppelin 4 is Led Zeppelin's best selling album in the US. It mm-hmm. peaked at number two behind There's a Ride Going On by Sly and the Family Stone, as well as. Was
1: it number one in the UK, I think? Yeah, I tore it up. It, yeah, it in Italy, it was a number two. It must have been. Yeah.
0: It was behind. So, it peaked at number two on the Billboard chart behind There's a Ride Going On by Sly and the Family Stone, as well as Music by Carol King. Mm -hmm. it is the fifth best-selling album of all time period so on the rolling stones list of the 500 greatest albums of all time in 2003 this was number 66 in 2012 it was number 69 nice and then now in 2020 is number 58 so moving around in the 60s upper 50s more or less the same spot yeah i mean which
1: is i guess i'd say kind of surprising or unusual because they're were so many other albums that got kicked off or reorganized yeah. when i think it really opened up mm-hmm. in the 2020 list but i mean we'll we'll save our verdict for the end if yeah. it belongs that in that spot yeah. or
2: not
0: yeah stay tuned a little, little teaser there Put derek i the think beat. it might
1: be time yeah. for a commercial break <laughs> yeah let's do a commercial break for B- it. bills to pay dogs to feed <laughs>
0: This episode of Please No Moss is brought to you by Black Dog Brewing. They've been brewing beers in the town of Four Sticks, California since 1971, but you don't need to go to California to try their West Coast IPA. It's sold nationwide. The crisp, cool flavors of their Misty Mountain Hops, blended with delicious citrus flavors, will be sure to get your next party rocking and rolling. They've also got their Flaming Heart Red Ale, of which I frankly cannot get my fill. Their Wrath of the Gods Porter also delivers a punch to the nose with its rich coffee and chocolate notes. With Black Dog, every sip is like a stairway to beer heaven. Must be 21 or older, drink responsibly. So the album art for this album, the front and back cover is a single image. The, the So on the front we have, there's an oil painting of an old man carrying a big bundle of sticks on his back, bent over using a cane and standing in a field. The frame painting is hanging on a wall with peeling wallpaper. And then on the back cover, you can see that the album reveals the wall has been partly demolished, allowing us to see an apartment building in the distance. The 19th century painting was purchased from an antique shop by Robert Plant. Um, it was a photograph, no? I have it that it's a painting. I, I mean, it's a photograph of a painting.
1: I think it's a painting of a photograph. A photograph taken in black and white that was then hand colored. Is the story I found. Oh, okay. Maybe there's a conflicting history here, but yeah, what I had found was that it was a actual photograph that had then been colorized and stylized to what they ended up using on the album.
0: And you are talking about just what's in the frame, not the whole... Precisely. Cool. Yeah, because uh, I mean, the whole thing is obviously a photograph. And then the apartment building that you see on the back of the album is actually Salisbury Tower in Birmingham, which was completed in 1968 and is still standing today. So it would have been, you know, when this album came out in 1971, it would have been like brand new construction, basically.
1: Completely unremarkable, though. Like, even though it's it's, technically like international style, it's super anonymous. Well,
0: yeah, I mean, it's, you know, British construction in the early, early, late 60s. It's not doing anything fancy. But it was intended to, the, the contrast of the subject of the painting and then this new construction was intended to evoke a city slash country dichotomy which was supposed to remind people to take care of the earth
1: the ecology yeah, yeah. i mean i don't I'm not know sure if i got the earth message through
0: it i can sort of maybe see that like oh we're returned to the simple country life don't build up buildings like this or buildings like this are taking the country life away from us i can see maybe
1: that's there What is this, the Village Green Preservation Society?
0: Well, I mean, the building that the painting, or rather photograph of the old man with the sticks, it's on a wall that's been demolished.
1: Yeah, from like an old Uh, suburban Yeah, to make room for
0: this new construction. Yeah, that being said, that message is nowhere to be found on the album itself. No. Unless you can maybe parse apart the lyrics of Stairway to Heaven, but I'm not sure anybody can do that. (laughs) Yeah. We'll talk about that more. Inscrutable.
2: I mean, I just kind
1: of took it as, like, the folk aspect of the I guess oil painting we'll call it yeah. for lack of a better term contrasted with like the more contemporaneous you know hard architecture to be their blend of their folk music roots with like this sort of more modern heavy rock feel and that way I'm just like okay well it's an I just have a metaphor for the style of this album in the platter that's served mm-hmm. up on
0: so then on the interior of the album there is a black and white illustration of a cloaked figure standing on a rock holding a lantern and a walking stick um, this image would become sort of iconic for led zeppelin and used in a lot of their you have it on a t-shirt i I did have it on a t-shirt in high school so this illustration is titled the kermit by artist barrington colby it was influenced by tarot deck design and the character was portrayed by page himself in led zeppelin's 1976 concert film the song remains the same in 2010 led zeppelin 4 became one of 10 classic album covers from british artists to be commemorated on a uk potion stamp issued by the royal mail All right. So with that being said, let's move into the songs from the album itself. So track number one, Black Dog. Hey! hey.
1: I think we, when we were talking about Arcade Fires Funeral, how their intro to their first song, The Strings... They're so recognizable on that album. But just starting off with Hey, Hey, Mama, I like the way you move.
0: Yeah, it grabs your attention right away.
1: Yeah. And uh, the structure of the song is really interesting because it follows a call and response, it's something that I was associated, you know, growing up in the Catholic Church as like a religious type of music. But you're talking earlier about a completely secular inspiration here.
0: Yeah, according to my research, the call and response dynamic from Black Dog was inspired by. The song Oh Well by Fleetwood
2: Mac. I can't help about the shape I'm in. I can't sing. I ain't pretty and my legs are thin. But don't ask me what I think of you. I might not give the answers that you want me to. Yeah.
0: It's an earlier Fleetwood Mac song, I believe, before Stevie Nicks joins the band. So it's a bit yeah. of a heavier song that you're not really used to. Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, you know, it rocks. It's, yeah. You're not really used to Fleetwood Mac songs pre-rumors, basically right <laughs> this is like this is a very distinct rumors sound that you associate with Fleetwood Mac I
1: know it's pretty rocking yeah but I mean having listened to Oh Well I'm like okay so it's the first minute of that where there is a call and response and then the rest of the song is just response yeah but I like it it's, it's nicely paced you know he has a little bit of a couplet and then the guitars and drums and everything come in and you just get that fucking cowbell going <laughs> the yeah. whole time
0: yeah the lyrics aren't super inspired they're just basically about an attractive woman that does the singer wrong but john paul jones wrote the song's main rift which was inspired by muddy water's 1968 album electric mud i don't know which specific song off of that album or if there was any it might have just been inspired by the album yeah.
1: I mean musically I see a lot more inspiration there than Fleetwood Mac. Structurally sure, I'll give you yeah. that.
0: The song also features some pretty complex rhythm and time signature changes, especially in the for the in the pre-chorus for example, the guitar and bass riffs move by a half beat with each repetition mm-hmm. of the of the riff. So the band is effectively playing 9/8 time over Bonham's 4/4 four, four drums. We'll play a little clip here so you can listen for how the guitar hook moves around the drum beat, never matching up with the same part of the bar.
1: I imagine this is probably inspired by them just like kind of jamming out in the country house and like, oh, yeah, we just naturally kind of shift when you're out in the studio sanitized yeah. environment. And
0: I saw a there was an Instagram reel where this guy. was like, oh, trying to transcribe Black Dog. <laughs> and he gets to this one riff where it's just not in time at all. And it's just like trying to figure out the time signature and just like what is going on there. And you it's just really get- just like do what feels good. I think it's yeah sort of the. The annotation that would be on the sheet music there.
1: Yeah. I mean, you can have, you know, drums or something following a standard signature and then layer on top of that.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I
1: mean, I, I should say jazz maybe sounds like that. I'm sure there are professionals who are playing and dedicated time signatures and things there.
0: So the song was named after a black Labrador retriever, perhaps a stray, unclear, that would wander around Headley Grange while the band was recording the album. And then the song was released as a single on December 2nd, 1971, about a month after the album's release, with Misty Mountain As the B side. And then the song peaked at number 15. So for the second track, Rock and Roll.
1: alluded to earlier this is in the cadillac commercial so anyone that was born after the year 2000 (laughs) has heard it what's there to say about this
0: this song is i think the most danceable song on the album pulling a lot of influence from 1950s rock and roll music the song actually developed from a spontaneous jam session while the band was recording four sticks bonham began just playing the drum intro for little richard's song keep a knockin And then Paige added a Chuck Berry-style guitar riff on top of that drum intro. The lyrics also about returning to the days of simple 1950s rock and roll music. Plant sings, it's been a long time since the Book of Love, which is a reference to the song Who Wrote the Book of Love by the Monotones.
2: I wonder, wonder who, who wrote the Book of Love.
0: So in addition to the reference to the Book of Love, the lyrics also make a jab at critics of Led Zeppelin Three. The song of- Oh, <laughs> really? Yeah. So this, I mean, maybe, depending on- how much you read into these lyrics but the song opens with the line it's been a long time since I rock and rolled which is perhaps a jab at critics who said that Led Zeppelin 3 wasn't a rock album because it had had so much sort of folk and Celtic inspired music in it rather than you know the hard blues driven rock of Led Zeppelin's 1 and 2
1: sure I mean it's different
2: yeah
0: that, that, that was real criticism I'm interested to see like how anybody could make that association for an album that has the song Immigrant Song on it Yes. Arguably the hardest rocking song in Led Zeppelin's catalog.
1: Yeah, I mean, was it nominated for any folk music awards? (laughs) No. (laughs) Seems a bit silly, although maybe the definition now of rock and roll is a bit broader than... It was back then.
0: So in addition to recording the Rolling Stones mobile studio, the song also features a guest appearance from Rolling Stones pianist Ian Stewart. Uh, ah. Yeah, he's playing the keys on this, which is interesting because usually John Paul Jones plays the keyboard or, mm. or piano for most of other loads Up songs.
1: But he wrote this song, right, right with Bonham
0: i mean it was sort of a jam but but yeah with this and black dog it's a hell of a one-two punch to open the album Mm -hmm. Uh, it
1: keeps the energy going
0: yeah i mean i've always associated these two songs as being sort of parts one and two of like they always just go together in my mind
1: yeah to the point that our untaped conversations we've confused them a little bit both of us
0: and the only other thing i'll add is that this song peaked at number 47 on the billboard hot 100 all right so the next song up is the battle of evermore
2: peace the coo, a of night alone. the dark of night sing to the Lord. Dark in-
0: This song was written by Paige on a mandolin that he borrowed from John Paul Jones while they were at Headley Grange. but he actually never played mandolin before. And writes this whole song on a mandolin. Being uh, a complete,
1: completely unmusical person, at least when it comes to strings, is it that hard to transpose? I mean, I there guess are- it's a different... Gale,
0: there of. are two more strings on a mandolin. There's eight strings on a mandolin versus hmm. six on a guitar. But, you know.
1: It's shorter, so they're just kind of notes are shifted around, right?
0: I mean, I'm not. I don't play either guitar or mandolin, so I couldn't tell you. I just know that there are eight strings on a mandolin and six. We need our
1: music. resident banjo player here yeah. to
0: explain. Well, there's five strings on a banjo, so it's entirely different. Five's right But I do know that page also played the 12 string gu- guitar, so, you know, you split, you just have. split the difference. So you get an eight strings on a mandolin, right? That's how okay. it works. So Plant added lyrics inspired by a book that he was reading about the scottish independence wars i don't know which lyrics specifically but i know the lyrics also make allusions to lord of the rings a frequent theme in led zeppelin's work
1: of course i refer to him by the i guess derogatory title the lord of the rings fan band usually when we're also talking about pink floyd in the same conversation
0: so lord of the rings references are also featured in the song ramble on from led zeppelin 2 and misty Misty mountain hop hop, which we'll talk about more on this album later uh you've got lyrics in this song like the dark Board rides in force tonight. It could be reference to Sauron. You know, it specifically calls out the Ringwraiths ride in black. Oh right, there's no other literature in which, or anything else in the world that features ring race other than Lord of the Rings. So it's pretty. Do we know like
1: personally were they like fans of Tolkien? I guess growing. Up? Jimmy Page was, was for sure. Okay,
0: so yeah, Lord of the Rings stuff. The song also features a duet between Robert Plant and singer Sandy Denny from the folk rock band Fairport Convention.
1: Oh, bring me Sandy Denny. This
0: is the only female vocalist heard on any Led Zeppelin songs, and Ever. or any guest vocalist for that matter. So it's usually just. Robert Plant singing but here we get a guest vocalist
1: so I'm looking at like the history of the Fairport convention here and the Bath Festival of Blues Plant played the role of narrator and Sandy Dunny being the town crier I mean they they criticized I guess Led Zeppelin 3 as being a folk album is this kind of like a fuck you like we'll actually get a a well-known British folk (laughs) artist on this one and make it a rock album
0: in the end I mean maybe I'll take it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the part of this song that I really like is over towards the end of the track there's these cool harmonies that happen and then it sort of gets discordant for a little bit but then it resolves in a really cool way Also note, there's no percussion at all in this song, which, you know, I think if and when they- Was per- he just out of the studio having yeah, a if, cigarette? If and when they perform this live, I like to imagine that John Bomb Bonham, John Bonham just like left the stage and smoked a cigarette <laughs> for a little bit. And
1: I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't feel like there was a whole lot of drama during their productive years.
0: No, they, for as far as I know, they all got together really well.
1: Possibly in a- great exception yeah, to their like, contemporaries
0: so the, I mean really the only reason the band breaks up in 1980 is because of John Bonham's death which we'll yeah. talk about uh, later
1: and I think also like a lot of 70s rock just didn't translate well into the vibe of the 80s I mean you have the who with Eminence Front which is them oh. basically admitting that like we're done we, we can't survive anymore with this I mean
0: that's really the genius of Jefferson Starship is it not <laughs> the genius <laughs> truly to be able to go from white rabbit to we built the city on rock and mm-hmm. roll
1: genius move. genius four dimensional shit it's like
0: oh, th- how many songwriters can write both of those songs i'm not <laughs> it's saying, called range although i'm pretty sure neither of those songwriters were in the band at the same time
1: <laughs> yeah oh good lord <laughs> okay so anything else on battle of evermore
0: i uh, no, that that's all i got it's it's a fun little folksy kind of tune
1: yeah um, recommend checking out the live performances, I guess, like with most of these songs anyway. Yeah. So Side One finishes with Stairway to Heaven.
2: There's a lady who's sure All that glitters is gold And she's buying a stairway to heaven When she gets there she knows If the stores are all closed With a word she can get much.
1: Well, definitely not my favorite song on the album. I'd say possibly one of its most important in terms of legacy and popular culture impact.
0: Yeah, we could probably do a whole episode on just this song. So we'll try to keep it as brief as we can. But there's a lot Which to- is
1: to say, not very
0: brief. Yeah, there's a lot to <laughs> talk about here. Yeah. So Paige wrote this song over a long period of time, putting... Bits of taped music together,
1: so that's why it sounds so disjointed. Yeah, I mean, there's lyric, there's right?
0: pretty much three distinct parts that are mm. sort of Frankenstein together. To borrow a term from the Edgar Winter group, most of the lyrics were improvised by Robert Plant as Page played the song next to the evening fire at Headley Grange. And the fact that the lyrics are improvised doesn't really surprise me because it's. They're sort of all over the place with New Age Proverbs, condemnations of materialism, and religious illusions. There's no real cohesion to the lyrics at all.
1: No, I mean, can you build... Yeah, you can't build any sense of meaning out of it. Yeah, it's
0: like, if there's a bustle in your hedgerow... Don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed now. It's like, should I be alarmed if there's not a bustle? What... It's quiet. Too quiet. I mean, does
1: it just get back to the whole idea that, like, you can see the symbols, but don't read into them. You can listen to the music, but don't read into that either. Is it just purely uh, I don't know. pure I think acoustic?
0: Could. I love the music on this song. Like all of it, like the flute at the beginning, the I mean, the guitar solo is a classic. It's one of the great guitar solos. Oh of the time. yeah, yeah, sure. I, I guess
1: what I meant was like the lyrics themselves are they just meant to be like another instrument rather than like oh, having like interpretable meaning. I see. What you're saying. I feel like
0: there's an attempt meaning. I don't know how successful it is. <laughs> there was an attempt. Well, I feel like the song's trying to say a lot of different things rather than just mm. one central message because there's certainly like condemnation of materialism. is the easy one to point out. Yeah. You know, there's a lady who's sure that all liquid is, is gold and she's buying a stairway to heaven.
1: Who's selling it? Is it the church?
0: Perhaps. I Maybe mean, this is a whole like takedown of...
1: Indulgences. Indulgences. And stuff. I mean, if there was one of their albums that you could describe as medieval, <laughs> perhaps this?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, the song consists of three distinct sections. There's the quiet introduction on the fingerpicked acoustic guitar mm-hmm. accompanied by and actually recorders. I said flutes earlier, but it's a recorder. Then there's a slow electric middle section with a long guitar solo Again, one of the great all-time guitar solos, frequently like number one on the lists of greatest guitar solos. I can't
1: wait till we get to talk about Maggot Brain.
0: <laughs> and then the song ends with a faster hard rock section, and then ending with a sort of vocal-only epilogue that slows yeah. it back down.
1: Yeah, it's not so much a key change as just like different yeah. embodiments mean, of the same theme. So obviously, like the hard rock at the well, at the third section, let's say, is yeah. my favorite. I think gets to what the song should be
2: Mm
0: -hmm.
1: but i think it's just so funny that like
0: it isn't like a seven minute song (laughs) yeah so john paul jones plays the recorders on the original recording but then for live performances he uses a synthesizer Mm -hmm. uh for that part
1: does he play any other like i guess woodwinds technically on the album i thought he was just
0: not to my knowledge right now i might be deeper in my notes somewhere but jumple jones really like he's nominally the bassist for the band but he's also just like i'll play whatever
1: a virtuoso
0: yeah for sure i feel like often you'll find that the bassist is one of the more talented members of the band Mm -hmm. in in my experience the song was first performed live in belfast in march 1971 months before the album comes out Mm -hmm. and the crowd was allegedly unimpressed with the song because they were wanted they wanted to hear something they knew yeah. They want to do something from the first three albums. Play me
1: something spooky.
0: <laughs> For these live performances the song often goes over 10 minutes long. Robert Plant would add some ad-libs. I don't know if you've listened to the version from Song Remains the Same. On the
2: will laughter. Does anybody remember
1: laughter? I just say on the album itself Led Zeppelin 4 or at least the remaster which is all I've been able to find. Uh-huh. It is at eight minutes and two seconds. Okay. But also, it's at 900 million plays, Ooh. which the second highest is Black Dog with 348 million just being the, the, the title tra- track. Yeah. But yeah, definitely never released as a single, but I think Modernity has voted that, <laughs> yeah, it, as a single song, the most listenable. Yeah. listen to.
0: For live performances, Paige would also use a double necked guitar because he switches from a six string to a 12 string. Mm-hmm. And so he's able to do that within the same song without having to like f- physically pick up a new guitar. It's easier yeah. to do in the studio. You can just cut and edit it together. Uh, but sure. when you're performing it live, you need to be able to make that transition quickly without having a you know a roadie throw you a guitar <laughs> off stage, <laughs> throw you guitar and then not catch it. So in 1982, a full uh, over ten years after the song is released, mm-hmm. American televangelist Paul Crouch claimed that there were hidden messages contained in Stairway via t- a technique called backmasking.
1: We're talking about backmasking. Yeah.
0: So we'll play that section for you now that uh, allegedly contains references to Satan. Forward or backward? We'll play it we will play it backwards for You
2: Okay. <laughs>
0: All right, so that's what it is backwards. I don't know if you were able to pick out any satanic messages in that, but allegedly it says, Here's to my sweet Satan. The one whose little path would make me sad, whose power is Satan. He'll give you, he'll give you 666. There was a little tool shed where he made us suffer, sad Satan. Just, I mean, is
1: it just like haters frustrated that the lyrics forward don't make any sense? So they're like, (laughs) well, obviously there has to be something else going on. Yeah,
0: I don't know. Following these claims, California Assemblyman Phil Wyman proposed a state law requiring warning labels on records containing backmasking. Led Zeppelin has mostly ignored these claims that there's this hidden backmasking message In there. I have a quote here from one of the band members that says, Our turntables only play in one direction, forwards. Audio engineer Eddie Kramer called the allegation totally and utterly ridiculous. Why would they want to spend so much studio time doing something so dumb?
1: Yeah, I don't know about you, but my ears don't really work in reverse.
0: Yeah, Robert Plant said, To me, it's very sad because Starry to Heaven was written with my very best intention. And as far as reversing tapes and putting messages on the end, that's not my idea of making music.
1: Yeah, I mean, do you think they were really doing that in the studio? I mean, over the span okay. of like a couple weeks, like, come
0: on. But that is not the only controversy surrounding this song. Page's opening guitar licks resemble an instrumental from the song Taurus by the band Spirit, written by spirit guitarist Randy California. So, in 2014, nearly 50 years after the release of, mm-hmm. of Stairway to Heaven, spirit bassist Mark Andes and a trust acting on behalf of Randy California sued Led Zeppelin for copyright infringement.
1: Yes, I'm going to love every episode where we get to talk about copyright and I can present my really out spoken views about how it should okay. be abolished and this is a perfect case to establish why copyright law. so
0: we'll play both parts for you now so here is the led zeppelin intro for stairway to heaven mm-hmm here is the intro from Spirit. Taurus. Uh, the song Taurus. Yeah. they resemble whether it's copyright infringement is a whole other bag of beans
1: i mean so when you actually get down to like the facts in the case and like the actual analysis and they're like okay so there's like eight notes (laughs) that are like almost identical but these have commonality to so many other different songs that you can't say that taurus had a copyright on these like fundamental building blocks
0: Well, it's also important to note that Led Zeppelin had opened for Spirit in their first U.S. tour and would have been familiar with the song Taurus.
1: Access is definitely a big part of it. Every single one of these things, the jury verdict comes out incorrect i have Um, my
0: notes that the jury it was initially ruled in favor for led zeppelin like the jury found it didn't amount to infringement oh okay so the reason i'm getting this confused is and and then spirit appealed denied on appeal
1: the the ninth circuit clarified on bunk that they had been interpreting copyright law incorrectly based on this inverse proportion rule or inverse ratio rule which was basically they were factually trying to assess how much like what proportion of a song had been copied or infringed which that's nowhere in the actual text of the copyright law. So they dispensed with that, but like basically the courts are realizing that this was a lot of times just a cash grab.
0: Yeah. So in summary, let's definitely get sued in 2014. Mm -hmm. In 2016, jury rules that there is no copyright infringement. The case gets appealed. And then in 2020 the court again rules in favor of led zeppelin so while the two tracks may sound similar legally speaking there is no copyright infringement this is the reason i make this distinction is because led zeppelin has been accused of stealing a lot of their material for purposes of this episode nothing has been stolen for led zeppelin 4 unless you know you disagree with the court's ruling about stairway to heaven the only other case that might be controversial is when the levy breaks we'll talk about that later in this episode oh my god
1: yeah let's get on the let's talk about something is else. It's enough copyright. Um,
0: So as I mentioned, the guitar solo considered one of the greatest of all time. Jimmy Page actually recorded three different solos for the song and spent a long time deciding on which one to actually use for the album. Rolling Stone named this the number 61 on their list of 500 greatest songs of all time, despite never being released as a single, again, because Led Zeppelin likes to view their albums as sort of indivisible listening experiences mm-hmm. "Stairway to Heaven still became the most played song on the radio in the US.
1: Which was a weird song to have on the radio.
0: It was but it was insanely popular. Like people were calling in requesting the song and DJs were like well we don't have the single for it so I guess we just need to like drop a needle towards the final track on side one of this.
1: Album. Wasn't it, like what DJs would do is just put like a marker on a Prob- yeah to indicate like they the they must, have, they must
0: have done that. That's, yeah. But still like to have that level of you know that's just an extra little step of work that they need to do rather than just putting the single on
1: god forbid djs earn their salary
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean it's surprising that like i mentioned black dog and uh, rock and roll were both released as singles so it's (laughs) just surprising i mean those are the i think the most radio friendly songs from this album yeah Um, i mean and i think they can by themselves yeah but you know given Led Zeppelin's track record of not releasing singles it was surprising to me that they, they were
1: so were those those were the only two singles really stuffed the album right
0: uh yes i believe so i thought maybe misty mountain hop was but
1: i just had one last thing i oh, no, say... misty mountain
0: hop was the b-side so
1: right one last thing i just have in my notes is i find it so funny i don't think this is the best song on the album i don't know if that's anyone's contention but i relate to like robert plant also kind of hating this song or just like being annoyed it's like obsessed. Excessive popularity mm-hmm. to the point that he gave like ten thousand dollars to a radio station that's like we're raising money if you give us money we won't play this song and he's like yeah i have that kind of cash just on hand to give to some rando radio station but you know he's making the world a better place you always got to put your money where your mouth is
0: yeah i mean there's that famous scene in i think it's i think it's the first wayne's world
1: oh yes it's the first
0: one where wayne is at a guitar store and he's starts he, well
1: he needs help He's out. <laughs> He's getting ignored by the the clerk. Can I can I talk? Yeah, you? go for okay, it. Yeah. So he comes in the guitar store after salivating at the white guitar in the glass case on the front window. So he's like oh i know how to get some help and he like plays a couple notes and the clerk comes over and like puts his hand against the uh, guitar strings to stop the music and says hey man no stairway and points at the like across the wall there's a sign that says uh-huh. no stairway to heaven
0: well what's especially funny about that scene is because led zeppelin's so protective of their ip again you know they hadn't you know used, no license for no for license uses. for commercial use for intel 2001 that the notes that wayne is playing on the guitar before he's stopped sound nothing like stairway to death
1: (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i I didn't catch that the first nor the last time most recent time i've watched wayne's world
0: and that might be a different so there's a chance and i've heard different stories on this because i was a kid when it came out when wayne's world came out in theaters Mm -hmm. so i didn't see it in theaters i saw it on vhs years later right there's a chance that when it was in theaters, it actually did sound like stairway, but then for the home video release, it they changed it so it completely different. Oh my god!
1: I there are so many conspiracies. I, I in this can't episode.
0: this because it's lost to time, basically. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so if you saw Wayne's World in theaters, please let us
0: know. Yeah. We we need an expert to weigh in here. But okay, I, yeah. are there if any remember, more? Remember that specific two second clip. Right. <laughs> good the last thing I'll say about this song is that starting in the seventies and well into the eighties it became very popular for high school dances to end with this song you you might you might know the bare naked lady song grade nine I can- It, it's always just seems wild to me that you would end a dance with... It starts out as a slow song and was danced to as a slow song. You, you, know, you get together with your guy or gal and then dance together slowly for the first half of the song but then the song changes into this sort of hard rock anthem almost Mm -hmm. and anthem's a good term. and so it's like how did that transition work while the song is playing to switch from the slow dance into the fast dance and then back to the slow dance as the song goes to the epilogue do they did they do that part i don't know if you danced Siri in heaven at your prom, let us know.
1: <laughs> I like what I like to imagine is they just played it through the slow part and then just played the slow part in reverse.
0: They just cut out the heavy ending. They're I don't like, know. I right, talked- played the
1: slow part forward. Now we're just going to reverse it to the I've end. I talked- can hear I've- the I've, t- I've talked
0: to my parents about this because they went to dances where this was done mm-hmm. and they just said it was like, oh, it was so awkward to make that transition. And it's just like, if it was awkward, why did they do it? Dude, was it if- the DJs just like having goofs? And just like I'm gonna watch these awkward teens navigate this, <laughs> so that's end of side one. Side two of the album opens with Misty Mountain Hop. <laughs> This is another Tolkien reference, the Misty Mountains being a location in Middle-earth. Plant wrote these lyrics about dealing with the clash between students and police over drug possession. There was a legalized pot rally in Hyde Park in London in 1968 where the police made arrests for marijuana possession and apparently this was an event that Robert Plant just happened to be walking past or maybe intended to go to based on Is the
1: pot smoke the mist? it Could
0: be. I mean, he says he was really out of his mind and didn't know what time it was. Been there. This is probably i think the most fun song on the album for me the the guitar and it's sort of bouncy and
1: yeah i mean i think if you're talking about like old school rock and roll inspirations it has that just kind of rolling tempo to it Mm -hmm. i really find interesting is the kind of way the vocals delivered like staccato along with we'd said earlier the downbeat Yeah, like the drums and things. Yeah, it's just got like a very regular kind of pacing to it. And when he like breaks from that format in the lyrics. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of more beautiful kind of thing that's emphasized by how regular the lyrics previously fit in with the rest of the music. So if you think that the end of side one is Stairway to Heaven, which in my, you know, confused brain is Lyrics don't really make a lot, but they're just there to add another layer of music to the whole composition. And then you come into side two with this, where again the rhythm of the other instruments is primary and the lyrics are secondary to that, or the delivery of the lyrics is dictated by those other instruments. I think it makes sense thematically. It carries you through the natural break mm-hmm. in flipping the record. So I don't know, I just say it's it's a really interesting lyrically, vocally kind of song.
0: Yeah, I John Bottom's killing it with the drums on this one. The drums always stand out to me. I I think that sort of lends, like, helps support the bounciness of the song and just to help really lay down that beat.
1: Um, Yeah, and the way it makes, like, the drums are the most prominent.
0: Yeah. The only other thing I'll add is we've got John Paul Jones on electric piano here. And some of the chords he's playing, it's just like, what are you doing back there? Which is something I didn't really notice until I started listening to the song again for this podcast. Mm -hmm. And it's just like... What are these chords? Like, what is happening? He's playing to the same rhythm as the rest of the song, but the notes he's playing don't match what anything anybody else is doing. Yeah. I... And not from just, like, a harmony perspective, because it's not harmonious.
1: Yeah, it's like, are these chords actually, like, being built? Or are you just, yeah. like... It'll almost sounds like a chord being misfingered.
0: Yeah, so. it sounds like he was drunk and it's like I know when to play. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know what to play.
1: One of these days we'll get somebody in here that can actually read sheet music to a professional level, a competent level and can elucidate it. But
0: yeah, it'd be interesting to see like what
1: the music, sheet
0: music actually looks like. Yeah. So the next song on the album is Four Sticks. <laughs>
1: sticks we already had one well i mean the album cover itself is stick themed yeah
0: so that i mean that's what i have always sort of in my head sort of imagined this as the title track of the, <laughs> of, of the album for that reason there's i was talking with our friend moochie once about this album and it was like oh let's open four and then i immediately go oh four sticks and he's like four sticks is the song that you remember off that album and it's just like <laughs> because the guy's got a bunch of sticks on his back <laughs> it's, the title for this song comes from john bomb playing the drum pattern with four drumsticks oh my god i've seen not a video of him playing it but i've seen other people playing it with four sticks and they just have two drumsticks in each hand
1: gri- doubled, up, doubled up not up. Like, it's like between their like yeah
0: they're not like but it's not like a marimba player or something where they're spread out and so I don't know what benefit playing with two extra sticks is giving here. They only played the song live once. <laughs> they knew. Well, because it has really com- complex time signature changes, it's constantly shifting back and forth between f- five, eight and six eight. There's, there's probably some pattern to it, but just as so it
1: like 13, four or a, something or as a ca- four? yeah,
0: as a casual listener, it's it's hard to tell when those shifts are because it doesn't seem to be regular
1: well this probably you know you're talking earlier about how the guitar riffs in black dog are transposed as the song goes on so i guess it's just a theme on the album
0: of all the songs in the album they had the most difficulty recording this one
1: so that's why they only played it once yeah live anything else here
0: i mean aside from the drums there's this i like the part where the guitar kind of sounds like a clock bell chiming there's also a fun sort of fuzzy synthesizer sound during the bridge that i like Mm -hmm. and then in the outro plant seems to have just like a full-on breakdown
1: Jesus. yeah ooze and ah's, yeah. a lot of vocalization which typical for him Um,
0: overall i'm really blown away by what bonham is doing on the track if you listen to just the drum part it's incredibly intricate and again dealing with those time signature changes but i'm sort of underwhelmed by what the rest of the ensemble is doing well isn't that sort of
1: you know common throughout a lot of their albums that they'll allow each each member of the group to kind of share the spotlight on a particular track yeah like you know that okay this is a song for the bassist this is a song where the drums the most Uh important part the vocals the lyrics here are the most important part and it's fine it's not like they're all fighting Mm -hmm. on the same song for the spotlight yeah you hear in a lot of other bands possibly
0: why they got along so well oh
1: my god decently well-adjusted people in the 70s what so the seventh and penultimate uh track on the album is going to california
2: been my days with a woman and kind smoke my stove and drink all my wine.
1: very much I, i'd say possibly the most folky of any of them on there like even stairway to heaven has the rock part at the end yeah. but this is pretty mellow all the way through
0: yeah definitely slowing things down here you know, because you need, you need to give space on the album. It can't be all fire and flames. Could
1: you dance to slow dance to this song? Would this have been a better prom song?
2: <laughs> I,
0: I don't think so. The
1: lyrics are a little
0: yeah, yeah. It, they're
1: they're decipherable, and the meaning is definitely not what you want.
0: Well, right? this is sort of a love song the lyrics are about californian earthquakes but also trying to find the perfect woman you know and for robert plant who wrote the lyrics for this song that perfect woman might be Joni mitchell i don't know if this if you read about this at all
1: i have not read nor heard about this
0: so the song was loosely inspired by Joni mitchell robert plant big fan may have had a bit of a crush on her at the time I mean, who did? So the lyrics to find a queen without a king is a reference to Mitchell's song I Had a King from her debut album uh, Song to a Seagull.
2: I had a king in a tenement castle Lately he's taken to painting The pastel walls brown He's taken the coup-
0: uh, it goes mm-hmm. on to say in going to California, the lyrics go on to say, they sh- they say she plays guitar, cries and sings. And during live performances, right Pl- away,
1: mayor in the footsteps of dawn, trying to find a woman who's never, never been born.
0: Yeah. So during live performances, plant would often add "Joni" to the end of that stanza.
1: Oh, <laughs> that's so cute. Was this an unrequited love?
0: Uh, as far as I know, yes. Plant later would admit that the song is a little embarrassing lyrically. But it does, it did sum up a period of his life when he was 22.
1: Yeah. I mean, is this kind of like, like a reference to sort of more hippie music in the 60s, like going to California, oh, yeah, I think absolutely. you know, put a flower um, in, or going to San Francisco, put a flower in yeah, your hair. Yeah, for
0: sure. You know, especially these guys being from London. I think that's the other center of the counterculture at the time would have been London, but the American center was definitely San Francisco.
1: So no drums in this one. As well. Again, buy him off smoking a cigarette. Or a joint. I mean, you know, the first a j- verse. A jazz Smoked cigarette. my stuff and drank all my wine. A jazz cigarette. Jazz cigarette. Oh. song was
0: originally titled Guide to California. Um, oh, it
1: doesn't really offer much advice.
0: But the title was changed during Paige's trip to LA for the original mix of the album.
1: So when he was actually going to California. Yeah. Oh, what I want to say earlier is... Again, it's a departure from a lot of the other songs in this album, but I feel like if it was covered or released or something on, like, a Fleet Foxes album, it would have fit that vibe very well. (laughs) So, yeah, it's definitely, I think, has folk credentials more than a lot of other things. But the quote not being a rock and roll album label was never applied to yeah. led zeppelin four, despite like having a really great folks on. well i think we're multiple yeah
0: ones. well because i think by this point people had sort of settled into led zeppelin 3 and they're mm-hmm. like okay led zeppelin can do more than just rock your socks off they can do a bunch of stuff and well,
1: they still start with black dog on the album yeah nonetheless
0: well because you know that's their bread and butter but they let's album is constantly just like moving ahead of the critics. Like the critics wanted to judge their new album based on the merits of their previous album, and they were always trying to innovate and make, you know, make new stuff. You know, still sounded like their old stuff, but was, you know, they would do, you know, more folksy Celtic songs like on three and four. But yeah, that, that's the end of that, that's and then California.
1: We're on to the last song
0: on the album. And so the album then closes with the song When the Levy Breaks. It keeps This was originally a blues song recorded by Memphis Minnie and Kansas Joe McCoy in nineteen twenty nine. It was written about the Great Mississippi flood of nineteen twenty-seven, during which twenty-three thousand square miles of land was submerged and displaced thousands and displaced thousands and killing two hundred and fifty people. The floods, yeah. The flood helped contribute to the Great Migration during which black Westwarden. yeah, black agricultural workers were forced to move north to look for jobs in cities like Chicago, which is explicitly called out in the lyrics yeah. when the levee breaks. As I mentioned earlier, Led Zeppelin had has been accused of stealing songs from black blues musicians from the 20s and 30s i think that's true for a lot of musicians you know especially english rock bands from this time like the rolling Stones.
1: yeah because they all got Um, their got their starts as you know doing blues and jazz covers
0: and while that may be the case for some of led zeppelin's other Songs. That's not the case here. They properly cite Memphis minnie and Candace Joe McCoy as the songwriters in the liner notes for this album. So basically saying that this is a cover of that song, obviously mm-hmm. updated for 1971.
1: But they still kept, you know, the lyrics and I think the simple verses help yeah. to. There's a rhythm to the vocals that help the other yeah
0: kind of shine. John Bonham plays the drums on this one, it opens with this big drum break. It's one of the most widely sampled pieces of music ever. Oh yeah, it's incredibly
1: clear. If you just re-listen to like the first five notes, I'm like, oh yeah, Beastie Boys. Eminem.
0: (laughs) Yeah, rhyming and Stealing by the Beastie Boys" is a big one. So this, the drum part for this song was actually played in a stairwell at Headley Grange. With micro- the microphone being hung at the top of the stairwell, Bonham played drum mm-hmm. at the bottom of the stairwell. Both they had the ideal ambiance for the drum part. And I believe actually sort of inspired a trend in rock music at the time of recording the drum parts in these very tall rooms. You could, you know.
1: Just have the acoustics, you know, get yeah. the mic far enough away that the reflections off these hard walls for the mm-hmm. bass drums and things would be good.
0: So in addition to vocals, uh, Robert Plant plays the harmonica that you hear on this track. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, it sounds like a train. Portions of the song were recorded at a faster tempo and then slowed down in post-production, which is meant to give the sort of sludgy sound that you hear.
1: The guitars sound like they're slowed down a little bit. Okay, right? yeah. Definitely, you can, in the way that, like, the responses from being plucked.
0: This is also the only song that wasn't remixed in London. So there was the original mix in LA and then Paige brought it back and remixed everything except this song. He kept the original. Yeah, he kept the original mix for this one. Music critic Robert Christgau called this uh, the album's greatest achievement over Stairway to Heaven. He says that it plays like an authentic blues song, but has the grandeur of a symphonic crescendo. Similarly, music critic Stephen Erlewine says that this is the only song on the album on par with Stairway to Heaven. So if you're going to listen to two tracks from Led Zeppelin IV, Stairway to Heaven and When the Levy Breaks in that order I mean, whatever order you want i mean that's the order presented in the album
1: yeah so do we feel like you know starting off with black dog ending with when the levy breaks pretty good bookends to it yeah like what's the what's the journey through the album here
0: i think it almost reflects like led zeppelin's musical career up to this point so like you've got black dog and rock and roll which mm-hmm. sound very much like their early work off of one like and two, one. yeah, and then you got "Battle for Evermore," "Stairway to Heaven," and going, "Going to California." Oh yeah, oh yeah, which have the more folksy sound from Led Zeppelin. Three, and then when the levee breaks, I think brings it back towards the roots. Sort of like this is the sound that we want to, and maybe even Yardbirds kind of stuff. Not the way. Yardbirds, but like really just like hard blues. Like this, these are our influences, and we mm-hmm. want to just like take that and transform it into something new. And
1: I guess it's their homage. It doesn't exactly like chart a course for where they went in their later albums. No,
0: not anything. at all. I was gonna. Yeah, it, it's not a. It's not a preview. I, if anything, you your songs like Stairway and Misty Mountain Hop are perhaps more in that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially on House of the Holy, I think. Or,
1: I'd say House of the Holy. of uh, the Holy,
0: of and then Physical Graffiti, where they get more symphonic with songs like Cashmere.
1: Mm. Yeah, if you look at the totality here, yeah, you have callbacks to other things, but Four Sticks just kind of seems like a fun skit almost. Four Sticks a is, a, Four Sticks is, is a weird them. one, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is about the drums. It's really,
0: yeah, it's really just bottom showing off, in my opinion, and just everybody else trying to keep up.
1: It's like, good for him. Yeah. We've talked about all the songs in the album, track by track. Do you want to take a little break right now?
0: Yeah, let's, you know, got to pay those bills. Let's hear an ad.
1: Hey there, fellow adventurers! If you're a fan of epic quests and legendary battles, you need to check out this episode's sponsor, Battle of Evermore Shadow Legends, a mobile game from Zoso Studios. You'll embark on a quest through the Misty Mountains to solve riddles, battle with ring ringwraiths, and slay the Dragon of Darkness, all while earning legendary loot. Choose your character class, customize your gear, and assemble your own band of heroes. If you're already an Evermore fan, then check out the new expansion, Battle of Evermore Flood of Darkness. The levee has broken, flooding the realm of Evermore. Your heroes must explore mysterious dungeons and conquer challenges on your way to collecting the four runes needed to defeat the Dark Lord behind it all. That's Battle of Evermore Shadow Legends and Battle of Evermore Flood of Darkness. Pick up your swords and fly. And we're back. So having talked about the album, should we talk about how it was received at the time and the legacy sort of here?
0: Yeah. So it, the album received overwhelming praise from critics. Lenny Kay from The Rolling Stone said that if this was the band's most consistently good album yet. Robert Christgau, who we're going to hear a lot from, he's one of the you know, village voice music critic. He was a big name. in Long career. Music criticism, yeah. He called Led Zeppelin IV the definitive Led Zeppelin and hence heavy metal album. Again, Stephen Erlewine said that Led Zeppelin IV defines not only Led Zeppelin, but the sound and style of 70s hard rock. It's a big influential album, gets a lot of praise from critics. On the 2020 Rolling Stone list, you know, they have a little blurb that we like to read. So for Led's Open 4, they start out by quoting Robert Plant, who says, I put a lot of work into my lyrics, Robert Plant told Rolling Stone in 1975. Not all my stuff is meant to be scrutinized, though. Things like Black Dog are blatant, let's do it in the bath type things. <laughs> but they make their point just the same. On their towering rune-titled fourth album, Led Zeppelin matched the raunch of Black Dog with Plant's most poetic lyrics on the inescapable epic ballad, Stairway to Heaven, while guitarist Jimmy Page veers from the blues apocalypse of When the Levee Breaks to the mandolin-driven Battle of Evermore. It sounded like a dance around the maypole number, Page later confessed.
1: Inescapable is certainly one way to describe the lyrics <laughs> yeah. on Stairway to Heaven.
0: <laughs> the album was not nominated for any Grammys, and I think, you know, despite the critical acclaim... it. I think this is mostly because the Grammys didn't really start recognizing hard rock and heavy metal until the 80s. Though, on our What's Going On episode, we talked about the Grammy nominations for 1972
1: is the year. Refers in the previous year. For, right? Yeah,
0: for 1971. But given how the windows of eligibility work for the Grammys, because this was released in November rather than earlier in the year when What's Going On was released. And it was the, done. They'd already decided on the nominations, but hadn't yeah, released them. So yeah, so Led's Up and 4 would have been eligible for the 1973 Grammys, <laughs> <laughs> despite being released in 1971. So the Album of the Year nominees in 1973 for the tail end of 71 and most of 72 would have been American Pie by Don McLean. Mm-hmm moods by neil diamond um,
1: okay, less familiar with that one
0: the original broadway cast recording of jesus christ superstar and then future episode we've got Nilsson schmilson by Nilsson. and then the winner for Alan of the year in 1973 was the concert for bangladesh by multiple artists it was a sort of a fundraising live aid type thing oh, okay you know uh, something uh, sort of f- in my high school yeah. bangladesh it was led by george harrison but there a number of other artists involved with that project?
1: Where'd the band go after the success of Led Zeppelin 4?
0: So the band would release four more studio albums. We'll talk about two of them on later episodes, House of the Holy and Physical Graffiti. In 1974, the band launched their own record label called Swan Song. Smart move. Yeah. I mean, it's the Apple Records to the Beatles. Swan Song is to Led Zeppelin. And then on September 24th, 1980, John Bonham was on the way to the studio to rehearse for the band's North American tour. It would be their first North American tour since 1977. He stopped for breakfast where he drank four quadruple vodkas (laughs) <laughs> and ate a ham roll after taking like a light
2: breakfast yeah
0: after taking a bite of the ham roll he said to his assistant simply breakfast so he downs four quadruple vodka's takes a bite of the ham roll says breakfast
1: so he drank a liter of vodka <laughs> something like that
0: Bonham continued to drink heavily after arriving at the studio, and then after midnight, Bonham, who had fallen asleep, was taken to bed and placed on his side. The next afternoon, he was found dead, having asphyxiated on his vomit. The autopsy revealed there were no other recreational drugs in his system. So the tour was obviously canceled, and the remaining members of the band decided to break up, saying, We wish it be known that the loss of our dear friend and the deep sense of undivided harmony felt by ourselves and our manager have led us to decide that we could not continue as we were. That'd be pretty devastating. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Jimmy Page would go on to form a band called The Honey Drippers with his old friend Jeff Beck. Chic mm-hmm. guitarist Nile Rodgers and Paul Schaefer, later of the band leader for The Late Show with David Letterman. They would have a number three hit in 1985 with a cover of the song Sea of Love. And then in 1982, mm-hmm. Led Zeppelin would release their final album, Coda, which is a collection of unused tracks from other albums that they had previously recorded.
1: Are these like demos or are they more polished than that? I, I haven't They're more
0: polished it. than that. Like I said, like wearing a tearing is off of there. I don't know. It's a, it's a good album. I like Coda.
1: It, well, is Led Zeppelin 4 your favorite of their catalog?
0: Yes. Page, Plant, and Jones would reunite a couple of times after the band broke up, notably at Live Aid, where Phil Collins would fill in on drums.
1: And then some. In
0: 1995, when they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they reunited then with Jones saying, thank you, my friends, for finally remembering my phone number, because Page and Plant had reunited for some projects together without John Paul Jones. (laughs) (laughs) And so Jones threw a little shade at them for like, hey, I'm here too
1: friendly jabs
0: page and plant would release an album together in 1997 titled walking into clarksdale which i think got grammy nomination but i think it's just largely off of their uh, reputation rather than their quality star
1: power the yeah, yeah. Yeah, so last time, when
0: of. that album was released, they were planning an Australian tour, but had to cancel after the album didn't really sell. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. In 2007, there's a big reunion concert where Paige Plant and Jones all reunite, and then Jason Bottom, Bonham, John Bottom's son, playing on drums. That concert set the Guinness record for the highest demand for tickets for one music concert with 20 million requested tickets.
1: Taylor Swift hasn't overtaken it?
0: Well, this was in 2007, so I don't know. And this was just for one concert, Taylor Tyler Swift does a big tour where you can divide up those 20 million tickets into different multiple shows. This concert sparked speculation of a reunion tour, but Robert Plant already committed to touring with Alison Krauss. He had released an album with her that also got Grammy nominations. Might have even won, not, maybe not an album of a year, but very well received album from None them. Paige and John Paul Jones reportedly considered going on tour anyway without Robert Plant, possibly replacing him with Steven Tyler from Aerosmith, but then they abandoned that project.
1: I mean, as much as I don't really like Aerosmith, I feel like they could have made it work. Sound-wise, I think it would have meshed okay.
0: Well, 2007, the wait one more year, you get the guy from Wolfmother to do his Robert Plant voice, which he's already doing. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's sort of one of the things about the legacy of Led Zeppelin, is there's now been not one, but two bands that sound exactly like Led Zeppelin. You've got Wolfmother in the 2008-ish, mm-hmm. and then... In the last couple of years, we've had Greta Van Fleet, who sound again exactly like Led Zeppelin. It's just like, it's a good sound. It's, it's like, it's, it's almost the only. Only way to like be successful as a like a rock band in the modern music industry is to sound like Led Zeppelin
1: or another previously well-received band. Yeah. Well, yeah, because unless you're doing indie rock. Well,
0: I mean, in modern like pop music, so dominated by hip hop that it's hard to break through as a band, especially a rock band. So you need to basically stand on the shoulders of giants, as it were. Jimmy Page would receive an OBE in two thousand five for his charitable work. It's Order of the British Empire. So he's not a knight, but but he's in that. He's not Sir Jimmy Page. He's but he's Mister Jimmy, Jimmy Page. He's Jimmy Page OBE, <laughs> and then Plant would receive a CBE. I forget what that stands for, but similar to an OBE in two thousand nine for his service to popular music. So,
1: so he didn't do anything philanthropic. He's just a better
0: musician. <laughs> well, he would have, I arguably, more success as a solo career, especially with his. Uh, work with Alison Krauss right Jimmy Page he did was then the Honey Drippers and then a few other side projects but yeah it's always been like Jimmy Page is Led Zeppelin where Robert yeah. Plant is Robert Plant is Led Zeppelin and also he did this Alison Krauss stuff
1: and his solo career and now and zen the closest led zeppelin adjacent song i Uh, album i have think of the
0: closing ceremony for the beijing olympics i don't have this in front of me so i'm this yes the time is right so closing ceremony for the beijing olympics they're you know they do the thing where they say okay and then in four years we're going to be doing the olympics at this location and at the closing ceremony that olympic committee puts on a little show to sort of sign off
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and Jimmy Page played, I believe it was a whole lot of love from Led Zeppelin 1. Because uh, it was
1: going to London, right?
0: Yeah, because they were, yeah, the 2012 Olympics would be in London.
1: Yeah, Leona Lewis, Jimmy Page with David Beckham making an appearance. <laughs> of course.
0: Uh, david the, beckham arguably still is the most famous british athlete of all time. <laughs> <laughs> very cool so yeah so with that what are your final thoughts on this album so where was it on the list again 50 58
1: 58 we have the data to look at what's been in like the top 50 and how that's changed over yeah, we're, we're outside the, the, the top ten re- percent. it's cum laude if not summa cum laude for the class okay yeah i mean i, I think top 20 easily we're talking about ranking these on impact you know, the inspiration they provided for other people and a sense of like the quality of the actual work in it. Mm -hmm. I think it excels in the, by those three measures at least. So yeah, 57 right above it on the 2020 list is the band, the album by the band a little bit for, yeah, self-titled. You also have like above them, you know, Prince's sign of the times, David Bowie's Station to Station. I mean, maybe there's a good single from that, but I haven't really listened to that album ever. So it, it should at least be in the 40s, <laughs> judging by you know what's ahead of it in the 50s. So I think it's definitely lower ranked. But if you look at what it used to be, it was in the 2003 list, 66, on the 2012 list, 69. And then, like you said earlier, 58 here. So it's moved up, but not by enough.
0: Yeah, I agree that it's... I think this is too low, even at number 58. I mean, I'm a bit biased here because this is my favorite album by my favorite band. So I think this should be a top 10 album. Every song is great. Uh, it's got a good blend of hard rock and softer folk tunes to balance the pace and the listening experience. My favorite song will vary each time I listen to it. So I'm not going to pick one and say that's my favorite. I think Black, like I said, Black Dog and Rock and Roll are a hell of a one two punch to open the album. Aside from the sort of dodgy lyrics, Stare to Heaven is a masterpiece mm-hmm. of songwriting. The only reason people say they don't like it is because it's cliche it's like saying Shawshank redemption is your favorite movie
1: (laughs) i will take no offense to (laughs) the insinuation here i'm just doing it for clout or hipster points
0: four sticks and battle of evermore are probably my least favorite tracks from but for different reasons not to say that i dislike them i still love both of the songs but if if I had to pick songs as my least favorite for the album, and would be one of those two. Yeah, I mean,
1: I think it's just because I don't play drums. But yeah, Four Sticks is probably, you know, my bottom choice yeah. on the album, too.
0: Yeah, I must have listened to Going to California like a hundred times before I learned that it was about Joni Mitchell. <laughs> just <laughs> That was a revelation for me. Like I said, Missy Mountain Hop is fun and bouncy. And then When the Levee Breaks is an incredible track. But yeah, I think, yeah, should be higher. Absolute fantastic album
1: yeah so Uh, this is yeah we did number one number 500 number 58 58 so we're gonna bounce around a little bit
0: yeah we're bouncing around we're feeling fun but that's what we thought of led zeppelin for what did you think of led zeppelin for be sure to leave a comment on this episode with your thoughts on the album and we might read it on the show
1: so before we go we want to leave our listeners here with some album recommendations derek do you want to kick it off what did you bring with you today
0: yeah, so my recommendation is you know, I like to try to stay on theme, recommend albums that are similar to the album that we're talking about for the episode. And my recommendation this episode is Crazy Horses by The Osmonds from 1972. Yes, you've heard me right. The Osmonds, as in <laughs> Donnie Osmond. <laughs> While well, the Osmonds started as a Mormon preteen barbershop quartet, they released this album in 1972, and it was a major departure from their previous outings as a group known for bubblegum pop songs like One Bad Apple. This is a hard rock heavy metal album. Two singles from the album, Hold Her Tight and Crazy Horses, both reached number 14 on the Billboard Hot 100. In the 1991 book, The 500 Best Heavy Metal Albums in the Universe, <laughs> uh, music journalist Chuck Eddy ranked Crazy Horses as number 66. Donny Osmond is barely on the album at all as a vocalist and is relegated to playing keyboard because he was going through puberty at the time and his voice was changing. Instead, Jay and Merrill Osmond take on the lead vocalist responsibilities. Uh, the horn arrangements on the album are by Jim Horn. That's like a, an ice cream man named Cole. Horn was a <laughs> session musician who played flute and saxophone on the Beach Boys Pet Sounds and played the famous flute part from Going Up the Country by Canned Heat. Uh, He would later tour with John Denver. The opening track, Hold Her Tight, features a guitar riff so similar to Led Zeppelin's Immigrant Song that I'm frankly surprised that the Osmonds weren't sued by Jimmy Page. Uh, The title track Crazy Horses is about automobiles and how they are polluting the planet, but the song was banned in South Africa and France for what were believed to be references to drugs. The third song on the album, Girl, sounds like a Beatles B-side "Circle Revolver or Sgt. Pepper. And according to Donnie, Ozzy Osbourne, the Prince of Fucking Darkness himself, once told him that Crazy Horses was one of his favorite rock and roll songs. Uh, the album was certified gold in 1973. So that's my recommendation this week. Again, Crazy Horses by the Islands. Go and check it out. It's a, it's a fun one. And Pat, what's your recommendation this week? So I'm going to kind of circle back,
1: I guess, to the something I mentioned during the Marvin Gaye episode and recommend Pieces of a Man. That's the first studio album by Gil Scott Heron.
0: Jagged
2: jigsaw up About
1: the, world. the reason I brought it back up is, you know, we were talking about how 1971 was just kind of like a huge mix of different things for music and movies and culture in general. Track number one is The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, which I think actually fits back in kind of with Marvin Gaye's theme in his album. But I don't know what to say about it. But check it out. Gil Scott Heron's great.
0: Again, be sure to subscribe to the show and leave a comment with your thoughts on this week's album. Also, you can follow the show on Instagram at Please No Moss. To figure out what album we'll be covering next week, let's fire up our patented album selecting algorithm. All right, next time we'll be talking about number 159 Synchronicity by The Police. Until then, keep on rolling. We still have 497 albums to go.
1: Are we really going to listen to all 500? Please, No Moss!